Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yertena Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Shkalim, daf Yud Zayin, page 17. Uh, we've got a couple of Mishnayot, a couple of Halachot, as they're called in the Yerushalmi, on this daf, and we're actually going to leave them to you to read to yourselves. Basically, the comment that we wanted to make is just that we took note of the fact that there is great precision in these Halachot, right? The idea that there are 13 tables. This is the second halacha in the in the Beit HaMikdash, and they are positioned very precisely exactly here and exactly there. Um, and then the first one is actually on the previous Amud of uh, the bottom of, of page 16 at the very, very bottom, right? And again, it talks about the hishtachavayot, the prostrations that people would do in the Beit HaMikdash, and there's great detail, again, of where exactly everybody would, lo- would locate themselves. So you know, if we were in a more visual setting, perhaps where we could kind of outline things on a on a map of the Beit Hamikdash, perhaps we would try to outline this. In, instead, we're going to try to talk about a couple of other things on the daf. Um, and the fact is, I would like some visuals today. Uh, you know, in when we get to the section that I am about to talk about, uh, because it's um, some of the beautiful waters. There's a lot about water on this daf. Um, so the part that I want to speak about is as follows. I'm about halfway through, halfway through Amid Aleph, um, there's a discussion of um, the of basically what's happening when the waters would over overtake the the world, right? The the Gemara says that there were connected state famim shiatsa achad bedor anosh v'achad bedor haflaga. The there were two occasions when the sea went out and overran the dry land. Right, one was in the generation of Enosh, right, which we know about, right? Meaning the time, you know, if woke anybody up in the middle of the night and said, Okay, when did the waters overtake the world? I think everybody would talk about the Noah's Ark, right? And then the other is the generation of the of the Dorhaflaga, which is the time of the Tower of Babel. So the idea here is that the I, I, can't, I related to this in your Dana. I know you said the same thing. I relate to it as climate change because it's such a dominant conversation nowadays. I don't know that this is really climate change when we've got explicit Torah talking about, you know, punishment and dispersal and so on, right? But this idea and what we see on the daf here, both before this line that I've just read and what I'm about to read, um, we see really clear descriptions about, you know, the Sea of the Galilee, and we see here also, I'm going to, here we've got a story about different areas or whatever, descriptions of different areas where the water would overcome the land. And they're not even all in the land of Israel, nor Babylonia. Calabria, which in English seems to be Calabria, Calabria. I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce it, but it's a place in southern Italy. Right, that's one of them. And the next one, it went out until the rocks of Barbary, which is in North Africa. So, of course, there's a dispute over exactly where this water came out from the sea and where it overpowered the land. So, the first view is Rebelazar in the name of Rabbi Hanina, which is what I've just said, Calabria and Barbaria, Barbary. And then the next is a different view, which says the first case was a case of the rocks of Barbary. And the second case is that the water went out to Akko, which is in northern Israel, until Yafo, meaning the whole, basically the whole 
coast, and it's not the whole coast, but from Akko down to Yafo, which is now the Tel Aviv area, right? So there's still going to be dispute. It's still the Gemara, but basically they're describing, you know, the the rising sea and and when the land itself would be covered. So then the Gemara says, well, there's even a biblical text that supports this idea that the water would cover the earth, specifically, and it's a verse from the book of Eov, Ad thus far you will come, but no further, meaning this is as far as the waves themselves would come. Ad instead, of, instead of saying um, to here, ad po, it sounds a little bit like ad ko, which sounds a little bit like ako. Let's do that again. Ad po, ad ko, and then ako. So the play on words is, you know, you could do with it what you will, but the idea is that that's, that's one of the ways that there's a linguistic allusion, uh, I would say, from the biblical text to this idea that the water overpowered the land at Akko. And then there's another verse that says these proud waves. And again, ufo, ufo to sounds kind of like ufo and yafo. Again, it's it's uh, use your imagination if it doesn't sound exactly the same. Ad yafo ashid go on until until yafo the the waves would be um would be stopped right like the idea is that they would only go that far from Akko to yafo and of course the the verses here are going to be employed not so much for Calabria and again I apologize if I'm mispronouncing it I assume I am and Barbary right it's specifically there's biblical text to allude to the places in the land of Israel where the where the water where the sea overpowered the land. Um, and then the Gemara goes on to talk about, you know, other waters from rivers that would come out from Harhabai, and these rivers themselves would then reach the sea. So the Gemara just says as follows, Nicha, it's fine, it's good, that the river is going to reach Yama, Rava, the Great Sea, that's the Mediterranean, right? The Yama de Malicha, though the sea that is salty, that is the Dead Sea, because it's going to sweeten them. The water coming up from the river is going to sweeten the Mediterranean and also the Dead Sea, meaning the idea is that they'll become drinkable, I guess. That's potable. That's the idea of because they're salty, so then if you add enough, suppose if you add enough fresh water, eventually, not with the Dead Sea so much, right? The idea is that you would then be able to drink it. Yama de Tavere, Yama de Samchu, the idea is that there's the Sea of the of Tiberia, that's the Sea of the Galilee, and the Sea of Samchu, which the water there is already sweet. So what, is the, what do we care if the river reaches them? This is the implication of the Gemara. And the idea is that in each one of these places, once the, once the water increases these seas, so then they also get an increase of fish and so on. So I'm not going to say that this is historical climate change the way we're talking about it nowadays. But it is certainly an observation of something that took place in a way that we could say that is a climate, climate, climatic event, right? Whatever, in terms of there being some kind of historical uh, um, parallel, right, to this Gemara, where the Gemara is describing, uh, it seems to me anyway, uh, the Gemara is describing an actual historical event because it's not that it's recounted in the biblical text these verse these verses from Eov, as as you've heard like they're a little bit of a you need a little bit of imagination to get there right so the idea is simply that 
whatever happened physically that the water overpowered the land was something that was memorable and reportable and, and transmissible, right? People took, took it down and eventually made it into the pages of the Gemara. And here we are learning it as, as I say, there was some kind of climatic event. Well, they also have this discussion here about uh, the grain and the fruit and that they're going to grow faster than they did before. And I was struck by both of these passages that it's not necessarily talking about some type of end of days or time of Mashiach. Like it's not something miraculous that will happen in the world. It's more just this is something that's going to happen sort of in the regular evolution of life on earth. And I, I just wasn't quite sure like where to put that. Like, is this just talking about a future time and understanding that I guess ecologically, and maybe again, this is too much with a modern view, uh, that things as we know it on the planet are actually going to change. I thought it was a description of something that had already happened. Meaning, again, sometime between this first overpowering of the sea, which is in the time of Enosh, and then the time of... Yes, sorry, I, I should have been more clear about that. Right, the sea thing was something that happened, and the fruit, the, the, the grain and the fruit is something that will happen. Ah, got it. Okay. Right. You, you are, I, I, I should clarify that. So I don't know if that's just all, you know, observation um, of sort of looking at the world and, and how it works. Well, if it is, if it was a real shift in the, in the actual climate, then it's possible to say that this was a matter of warming. And then, you know, it's plausible. And this is pure speculation and don't read too much into it. But then it's reasonable to say that the the crops would grow better and the fruit would, you know, ripen faster, whatever, if the seasons have shifted in their temperature and so on. Right. It's possible. And, uh, you know, but again, there's no mention sort of of like God in any piece of this, which I also found fascinating. There's nothing about yes. that Hashem is changing Agreed. something. This is more just nature is going to work differently or did work differently at different periods of time. And it's almost on a way that like nature is on autopilot, but these things will happen. But there's no sense of like God made it flood. God will make grain grow faster or fruit grow faster. Um, it's more just this is what will or had happened in nature itself. The flood aside, meaning the big flood, the great flood aside. Correct. That, did you see that? What I, Do you hear what I'm saying about that? I do. Yeah, I do. Hear yeah. you. Um, but I'll move on to one other piece that I thought was interesting here in this stuff. And so um, since the... Uh, this part of the Gemara is responding to or discussing at least um, some Mishnayos that talk about sort of the structure of the Beit HaMikdash itself, you know, where people bowed, where the 13 tables were and these types of things. Um, it's now going to, um, uh, and, and one of the things that it talked about was that there were these sort of 13, I guess, breaches, uh, you know, made by Greek kings. Um, and so the Gemara now wants to talk about the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. When you found that Nebuchadnezzar came here, meaning to Eretz Yisrael, right? So he sat basically on the outskirts of, of Antioch. And the great Sanhedrin came to him. And said to him, Has the time come for the temple to be destroyed? So first of all, it tells the story that, you know, sort of like it's kind of like Nebuchadnezzar shows up and very matter of factly, the Sanhedrin, you know, comes and they're like, oh, we knew this was going to happen. So we're just checking with you. 
is this what's going to happen? Um, oh, and so he says, Amar lahen, right? Nebuchadnezzar says to them, Otoshim lachti alechem tenuhuli. So he says, the one whom I uh, sort of appointed uh, to, to, to reign over you, right? Hand him over to me, right? So Nebuchadnezzar is saying, you know, the king who's over you, who I appointed, you should give him to me, and then I'll just go. So in other words, Nebuchadnezzar seems to be saying, I'm not necessarily going to destroy you. I just need you to give me the king. Now, I was really thinking about this, and I think some of this or this type of passage, and I'm going to finish reading the rest of it, um, you know, does fit Nebuchadnezzar's personality a little bit. If you read Sefer Daniel in particular, and the beginning uh, chapters of Sefer Daniel, which has to do with how Nebuchadnezzar sort of took the youth and he sort of, re the Jewish youth, and he sort of re-educated them and gave them new names. And even throughout Sefer Daniel, he sort of comes out as sort of this, you know, he knows he's going to destroy the Jewish people, but there's something still a little bit benevolent about him. Um, and he sort of goes back and forth between sort of acknowledging that God rules the, the, the world and really rules him, but not totally wanting to acknowledge it. And I think we see sort of that here as well, right? Like, yeah, he's not going to necessarily destroy them right away. He just wants them to give over the king. So they came to Yehoyachin Melech Yehuda. So they come to this king. So remember, there were three kings that were sort of there for the end of the destruction. We see particularly in Sefer Yirmiyahu, right? Yehoyachin and then um, Yehoyachin, right? So there was Yehoyachin. He gets basically... He's only there for three months. Then Yehoiachin comes, um, uh, you know, in place of him. And then we finally have Tzidkiyahu at the end, right? So Nebuchadnezzar Bailach. So they come to Yehoiachin and they say to him, Nebuchadnezzar wants you. They want you to, they want him to come to you. And again, this seems to be like a very peaceful transfer of power. Uh, when he heard this from them, he took the keys of the holy temple he goes up to the roof of the sanctuary, right of the Eichal, Amr Lafanab, and he says now before Hashem, right? In the past, we were faithful to you, right? We were faithful to you, and your keys were given to us. Now that we're not faithful, now your keys are going to be returned to you. And so the other thing I think to note here is, is that certainly in the second Beit HaMikdash, sort of the person in power or sort of the spiritual leader was the Kohen Gadol. And here I think we see that it's really, the king really was the spiritual leader. And that's why it's the king who takes the keys. It's not the Kohen Gadol at the time, but it's really the king. And notice that the king is really identified here as Melech Yehuda. Right. So we're seeing really the end of some type of leadership that takes place at the with the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash. The Gemara goes on to say here, train Amorayim to Amorayim, you know, uh, have something different to say about what happens now. Chad Amar one says, Zarkan, the Od Lo Yardu, right? Yehoyachin throws the keys up and they have yet to come down. Right. And the idea of the Od Lo Yardu is that right, that eventually they could come down. And the other one says, that a hand came out or something, a kamin yad, something that looked like a hand came out from Shamayim and took the keys from his hand.
Kayvon Shara'u, right? So, sorry. So I just want to comment on that. I think the distinguishing thing there is, you know, what do you believe there? Do you believe that this was a man-driven action or do you believe this was a God-driven action about taking these keys away? And then finally it says, and Yehudah saw this, right? They all came up to the rooftops and they jumped off and died. And this is what's based on a pasuk here that they quote from Yeshayahu, Perakot Bet, Sukim Alf and Bet. Um, right, a prophecy of the valley of Chizayon, which literally means uh, vision, right? What has happened to you now that you have all ascended to the rooftops, full of commotion, a tumultuous city? And so what they're trying to say here is that, you know, this valley of vision uh, basically refers to Yerushalayim. Everybody was focused or looking at Yerushalayim and that the nobles of Yerushalayim, instead of being killed, right, they saw that this end was going to happen, that they actually took their own life. Um, and thinking about this particular midrash here, you know, I think you have to look at it in terms of reflective of, you know, some of the events that took happen at the end of Korban Bayit Shani, um, and some of the, you know, and how the Jews fought and did they choose not to fight against Rome? But we know that there was a lot of rebellion against Rome. And what comment is this saying? They don't, I don't think it's saying anything critical about the noblemen. In fact, I think it sort of understand it, it's, it's a pasuk that's giving some understanding to why they may have actually done this. But so I just a very interesting passage that I think makes Nebuchadnezzar, you know, we've seen other passages um, in other Masakta where Nebuchadnezzar is really viewed at as this sort of the evil of evil. And that doesn't seem to be the case here. Um, and then also, you know, that it's really the king who's empowered is still the spiritual leader who really sort of controlled that maft, the maftechot of the Beit HaMikdash is that, was that, you know, the people saying or, or the king saying we can no longer have access or was it God saying we can no longer have access? And then finally, you know, where do the nobles play a piece into this? So they really basically committed suicide uh, to avoid, um, you know, having to to be killed by Nebuchadnezzar himself. So I think this gives us a much different picture of that final destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash than I think we see in other passages in the Gemara. It's an interesting foil to the first half of the Daf, which is, you know, some portion, some significant portion of this Daf is really about the layout of the Beit HaMikdash. But this part that I talked about, which is about much more, the natural topography, shall we say. And this is very much about the, you know, the conduct right, of man. Exactly. This has much more to do with sort of man's role in that destruction um, as opposed to uh, Hashem's. And again, told in a just very matter-of-fact way. You know, even the way that Yehoiachin says to God, like, okay, before we believed in you, now we don't believe in you. Here are the keys. We don't deserve this anymore. But there's like no begging, eating. <laughs> it's sort of just like, yeah. everyone recognize, like, Yep, this was just inevitably, this is inevitable what was actually going to happen. But when you read Yirmiyahu, it's a very different version of what happened. I was just going to say, it's not, this is not the only account of this, uh, of these events. And the idea that it was matter of fact, in the, we call it a destruction of Chorban, right? A, a real mass destruction, because that's what it was. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't easy from what we know historically. This daf, I agree with you, it reads just like 
okay, here we go. This, right, this exactly. is the time this is for what this. needed to happen. And I think this gives us a different theological perspective of the Korban, which we can't fully unpack today, um, but, you know, different than other passages that we've seen. So we'll conclude here and just remind everybody to please sign up for a CM, which will God willing take place on April 11th. Uh, the registration link is on our Facebook page. It's been in the WhatsApp group, or you can email me or Anne. Uh, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rinkus reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hodgman website. Let us know what you thought about the staff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.